You are listening to Learn Out Loud's Biography Podcast. With this series, we will explore the lives of notable people throughout history, whether it be world leaders, political activists, spiritual luminaries, great artists, or everyday people. This podcast will be a showcase for their story. For a complete listing of Learn Out Loud's podcasts, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, Darwin, Darwinism, and the Modern World, taught by Professor Chandik Sengupta. To check out this course and over a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this lecture, Professor Chandik Sengupta discusses the life of Charles Darwin, covering the major events in Darwin's life, including his voyage on the HMS Beagle and his eventual publication of On the Origin of Species in 1859. Professor Sengupta covers a lot of Darwin's life in a short amount of time, while providing many interesting facts about the man whose theory of evolution by natural selection revolutionized biology and greatly affected many other areas of society from the late 19th century up to the present day. Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar Series, where great professors teach you. My name is Richard Davidson, and I'll be your host. Today, we begin a course entitled Darwinism and the Modern World. Your professor is Chandak Sungupta. Dr. Sungupta is a senior lecturer in the history of modern medicine and science at the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology, Birkbeck College, University of London. He received his Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery degree from Medical College, Calcutta, his M.D. in Psychiatry from the University of Calcutta, an M.A. in History and Philosophy of Science and Technology from Cornell, and his Ph.D. in History of Science, Medicine, and Technology from Johns Hopkins University. Professor Sengupta was a postdoctoral fellow at the Wellcome Institute for the History of Medicine in London, as well as Medical Historian, Social History, Wellcome Institute for the History of Medicine, London. He was also a lecturer at University College London from 1998 to 1999, and at the Wellcome Unit for the History of Medicine at the University of Manchester from 2000 to 2003. Dr. Sengupta's research interests revolve around the history of the behavioral and life sciences in Central Europe, especially turn-of-the-century Austria, with particular reference to the cultural and intellectual history of biomedical concepts of gender, insanity, and normality. He's currently teaching courses in the history of medicine and the life sciences in modern Europe, cultural history of imperialism, and the history of Victorian and Edwardian Britain. In addition to his published articles on a wide variety of topics in the history of science and medicine, Dr. Sengupta is the author of Imprint of the Raj, How Fingerprinting Was Born in Colonial India, and Otto Weininger, Sex, Science, and Self in Imperial Vienna. Five years aboard the HMS Beagle off South America was all it took for Charles Robert Darwin to topple centuries of conventional wisdom regarding life on Earth. But, of course, the story of the evolutionary theory which now bears his name is not quite so simple. 
This course aims to convey a clear idea of Darwin's insights about evolutionary biology as published in his 1859 work On the Origin of Species, viewing them in their historical, social, and cultural context. We'll examine Darwin's life as a naturalist in Victorian England, the gradual development of his thought in his 14 books, and the consequences his theories have had for science and culture, both then and now. Drawing on the same evidence that Darwin used from the natural world and the work of animal breeders, this course explains the hypothesis of natural selection not from a technical standpoint, but through simple biological concepts. In addition, we'll explore how Darwin's theory itself has evolved throughout the 20th century in its combination with genetics. We'll look at evolution's implications for humanity. Are we created in the image of God, or are we just a superior variety of ape? From scandalized Victorian congregations to modern-day court battles, Darwinism has inspired controversy in more than just the scientific community. We'll observe the rise of the modern creationism movement, and look at how other religious faiths have dealt with the theory of evolution, which, despite its many challengers, remains one of the strongest paradigms of the natural sciences. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin Darwinism and the Modern World, Lecture 1, Charles Darwin, The Man, His Life, and His Contexts, Part 1. And now, Professor Sengupta. I'm delighted to welcome you to this course, Darwin, Darwinism, and the Modern World. Virtually everyone has heard of Charles Darwin, and most of us have some idea of his theory of evolution. Many of us also hold very strong opinions on that theory, on whether it's accurate or not. In this course, we shall look at Darwin's own life, the gradual development of his thought, and on the consequences his theories have had for science and culture of his time and ours. We shall not only look at the history of evolutionary theory, but also at its present state, and end with an examination of some of the issues that might be important in the future. So the structure of the course would follow a broad historical form. The first seven lectures will be devoted to Darwin himself, the biographical contexts of Darwin's work, and on the 19th century impacts of his theories. The next four lectures will look at broader, more thematic issues. For example, it will examine the application of Darwinian theories to the study of human societies. In the last three lectures of the course, we shall turn to the modern world on the modern biological transformations and readings of Darwin's theory in the 20th century, its combination with genetics, the evolution of what we know as evolutionary biology. And we shall conclude 
with an examination of the historical origins of some of those potential difficulties. It's important to remember that this is not a course in technical biological science. It will deal with various conceptual issues related to biology, but it will not go into the depths of molecular biology, of genetics, or of the complexities of current evolutionary debates. Those are not the aims of this course. We aim to form a clear idea of the basic concepts of evolutionary biology and see them in their historical, social, and cultural contexts. Darwin himself was not a trained biologist in our modern sense. He was a naturalist in the 18th century mode, and he worked with principles that were largely of his time. His own audience was a general audience. He did not write his books for professional biologists, of whom there were precious few in the Victorian period. So Darwin was writing and thinking as a general naturalist, and that is the level of biological detail that we would need to deal with. Let us now turn to the main subject of this first lecture, which is the life and times of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin was born in 1809 in the town of Shrewsbury in England. His father was a doctor, as had been his grandfather Erasmus. Grandfather Darwin had also been a poet and naturalist and had even proposed a theory of the evolution of life. It had little to do with his grandson's later theory, but evolution, so to speak, ran in the family. As did wealth and high status, the Darwins were an eminent bunch and connected to many other elite families of England by marriage. The young Charles was sent to Shrewsbury School, where he did not do very well, however, and was then sent to Edinburgh in Scotland at the age of 16 to study medicine. But Charles was too shaken by the sight of surgical operations to continue. He went to geology lectures, but didn't like them much, and dabbled in amateur natural history. An acquaintance of that time told him about a theory of evolution that had been proposed by a long-dead Frenchman, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, on whom much more later. Darwin left Edinburgh without any kind of degree and went down to Christ's College in Cambridge University, where he studied a curriculum comprising classical languages and literature, theology, and mathematics. His aim was to take an ordinary degree and then enter the Church of England as a priest. Nonetheless, it was at Cambridge that he began to develop a serious and sustained interest in natural history that would take him far away from religion. None of this was clear at the beginning. One of his favorite course books was the priest William Paley's 1802 work, Natural Theology. This was a very influential book arguing that the universe and all its living beings were too intricately designed not to have a designer. Paley provided many examples of design in nature. The intricacy of the structure of the eye alone, he declared, was a sure cure for atheism. And indeed, even Darwin himself later admitted that it was hard to account for the evolution of the eye through countless minor adaptations. 
There were few full-time professional scientists in Victorian England in any field, and natural history was particularly full of amateurs. It was one of those professor friends, the botanist John Henslow, who determined the course of Darwin's life by recommending him for a job on the ship Beagle in 1831 as the gentleman companion of the captain, Robert Fitzroy. The Beagle's task was to survey the South American coastline and to circumnavigate the globe. Now, Darwin was not officially the naturalist of the ship. He was just the gentleman companion of the captain. But he eventually became the naturalist. As the Beagle surveyed the coastline, thus occasionally bored Darwin, went on frequent overland trips, bringing back many samples of the exotic flora and fauna that was unique to South America and that nobody in England had ever seen before. Most of these were shipped back to England to the amazement of naturalists there, and these acquainted English naturalists with many of the life forms to be found only in the New World. And for Darwin himself, these trips were of life-shaking importance. Shortly before the ship left, he had bought the first volume of a new book, which was by the lawyer and amateur geologist Charles Lyell. It was called simply The Principles of Geology. But it was a work that had a novel argument about the history of the Earth. Lyell claimed that the Earth had been shaped into its present form by continuous, very small-scale, everyday processes of geological change, not by major catastrophes. The processes of sedimentation, weathering, erosion, upward and downward movements of the Earth's crust occurred every day at every moment, slowly but unrelentingly. Even the most bizarre features of the Earth's surface could be explained by the prolonged action of routine, everyday, small-scale forces. Darwin found Lyell's theory very, very impressive. He thought it explained many of the geological wonders he was beholding on his voyage, and there were many of those. Limestone deposits tens of feet above sea level with the fossils of marine shells. Exactly as Lyell had said, the Earth's crust must be constantly in slow and imperceptible motion, rising or falling, so that the positions of oceans and continents were never totally fixed. All that was needed for the Earth to be redesigned and reshaped was time. A lot of time, but with time, the Earth could be redesigned into completely new forms. Lyell insisted that the Earth was actually much, much older than people usually imagined, perhaps even thousands of millions of years old, which would give his scheme the time to work. But it's important that we remember that Lyell was not an evolutionist in any way, but nor, of course, was Darwin at this point. Nevertheless, Lyell's geology opened Darwin's eyes to the possibility that with sufficient time, very small-scale changes could bring about massive transformations. When he began the voyage, as you will know, Darwin was a believer in the Christian account of creation. He wanted to be a priest. By the time the Beagle returned to England, however, he had begun to question 
notions about each species being fixed for all time in their physical characteristics. So Darwin saw all this and was gently puzzled, mused on all the mysterious things he was seeing on the Galapagos Islands and elsewhere in South America. And in October 1836, the Beagle and Darwin with it returned to England. Darwin realized that he no longer wanted to be a priest. Once he had finished the protracted job of sorting out the specimens collected on the voyage, and he also had to finish writing up the Journal of Researches, he moved to London, where he stayed for two years, and during these two years, for the first and last time in his life, he had something like a public scientific life. He was a secretary of the Geological Society, and as he put it himself, he even went a little into high society. Several years later, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, one of the greatest scientific honours any British man of science could have. But most of his time during those years was spent reading widely and extensively into natural history and areas connected with it. And always, always Darwin had the question of species at least at the back of his mind. He took copious notes and he kept very meticulous notebooks. Studying these, historians have now shown that he tried to illuminate the species question from every conceivable perspective. That of natural history, of course, but also of other sciences and other disciplines like reproductive biology, geology, and even political economy and psychology. Darwin no longer believed that species were fixed entities, fixed for all time. But he was far from sure about exactly how they changed. One process that might cast some light on the problem, he thought, was the induction of variations in domestic animals by professional animal breeders. The breeder, Darwin found, always began by identifying a few features that were useful or aesthetically appealing to buyers. Let's say a kind of tail in a species of pigeon. If one then bred continuously from pigeons carrying those particular traits, then after a few generations, the descendants would possess that kind of tail in enormously well-developed forms. Darwin spent a lot of time talking to pigeon breeders, and he learned much from them. For example, he realized that breeders could never actually create new species. What they could do, however, did show very clearly to Darwin that the physical structure of all life forms could be modified considerably by selective breeding. Another big stimulus came quite by chance in September 1838 when Darwin read a book by the late Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus called Essay on the Principle of Population. This one was one of the most notorious books of the 19th century. It had been published at the very end of the 18th century in 1798, and it set out to show that contrary to people's beliefs, 
an increasing population was not a good thing. The rise of population did not increase the strength of a nation, as some politicians and philosophers thought at the time. Population, according to Malthus, increased in geometric progression. For example, 2 became 4, which became 8, which became 16, which became 32, which became 64, and so forth. Food production, however, increased far more slowly in what Malthus called an arithmetic progression. 2 became 4, which became 6, which became 8, which became 10, and which became 20, and it went on like that. So there was a definite mismatch between the rise of population and the maximal food production any society could achieve. And it was because of this mismatch between population and what Malthus would say, the needs to keep that population alive, that there were definite limits on the improvement of society. It was impossible to conceive of a society where all the members should live in ease, happiness, and comparative leisure, and feel no anxiety about providing the means of subsistence for themselves and families. That was Malthus's argument, and his argument was aimed directly at those who believed that the increase of population could not reduce the means of subsistence, because large areas of the planet could be brought into cultivation. Malthus said this was impossible. No matter how much the food cultivation rose, the rise in population would always be greater. And because of that greater rise in population, there would be famine, poverty, starvation and disease. In very primitive tribes, rise of population could lead to the drive for fresh conquests and therefore to wars with other tribes. Malthus called this the struggle for existence, a phrase Darwin would immortalize in a somewhat different context. Now Malthus was not just writing from some kind of scientific spirit. He was concerned with major social questions. For Malthus, it was totally counterproductive to give doles or other relief to the poor because that would merely allow poor people to reproduce more and thus to increase the very problem of poverty that people are trying to solve with aid. Now, Darwin was not primarily interested in questions of poverty and social welfare. What struck Darwin was Malthus's argument that it was the pressure of population that brought about a competition for resources and a struggle for existence. In his autobiography, Darwin later recalled, I saw on reading Malthus on population that natural selection was the inevitable result of the rapid increase of all organic beings. So Darwin thought, because of this struggle for existence, individuals who had certain physical qualities enhancing their ability to cope better with the demands of life than their fellows would survive and multiply more than individuals without those features. With time, and again with a lot of time, as Lyell had needed for his geological theories, those variations would be intensified, 
those variations would grow more and more prominent over generations and over countless generations these variations would grow so much more prominent that they would lead to the formation of a new and clearly distinct species. And it was this process that Darwin called natural selection. It would work all the better when it was aided by the isolation of certain populations by the facts of geography. For example, on the Galapagos Islands, these populations had been isolated simply by the fact that they were on different islands. Some aspects of this theory Darwin would change later. But by the end of 1839, he had his skeleton in place. He also got married that year to his cousin Emma Wedgwood, moved to Downhouse in Kent in 1842, and became a complete recluse. Part of the reason was he was suffering from an intermittent illness that nobody has ever been able to diagnose. Lots of people have tried, and the main theory seems to be that it was something psychosomatic and an illness that aided Darwin in keeping out of society and getting on with his work. But these are all speculative theories. No one really knows what was actually wrong with him. But gradually Darwin retreated into this reclusive life and avoided most public engagements, spending his days in reading, research, and some experimental work that he could conduct easily in his country estate. In 1842 and 1844, he wrote two outlines of his theory of the origin of species, entirely for his private reasons, to clarify his thoughts and to keep some kind of record of his theory in case he should die before publishing them. Despite his illness, he worked very hard and he can't have spent all his time working because he has to have 10 children over the years. He built up a huge international network of people he wrote letters to, whom he used virtually as his research assistants on exotic or mysterious aspects of natural history that he could not solve sitting in his armchair at Down in Kent. Later, Darwin would claim that he had worked on purely empirical scientific principles and had collected facts without any theory at all. This was not quite true, since he had several big theoretical ideas in his head by now, and the questions he asked his correspondents were always guided by these big ideas. He did not reveal the details of his theories to his correspondents and told only a very few close friends about them. One of those fortunate friends was the botanist Joseph Dalton Hooker, who later became director of the famous Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew in London. Another friend was the American botanist Asa Gray, to whom Darwin sent an outline of his theory in 1857, but asked him not to discuss it with anybody else. Gradually, Darwin was gaining in confidence. And in 1856, he took the big step. He started work on what he always referred to as his big species book. This was going to be a massive book, setting out all the evidence Darwin had collected for the gradual evolution of species. He did not wish to publish anything that was not watertight. Not only was he 
careful by nature, but he was very well aware that evolution was a potentially controversial issue. A half-baked theory would be torn apart by his critics and his scientific reputation would be ruined forever. So he moved slowly. His fundamental theory was actually very simple. In every living form, small variations would arise totally randomly. We would say by random genetic mutation, but in Darwin's time that was of course unknown. Some of these random variations would make the individuals more successful in the struggle for existence. They would live longer, they would cope better with the environment, and most importantly, they would leave more children. Those children would, of course, inherit the same favorable features that had led to the increased survival of their forefathers. The number of individuals would thus increase over time with the same kind of favorable variation. And ultimately, those variations, or to use the correct technical term, adaptations, would become so prominent in the group that the individuals would form a new and distinct species. And this was natural selection. Think about it carefully and you'll see that the name can be slightly misleading. Natural selection is a passive process. It is not quite the same as the kind of selection that animal breeders undertook, for instance, and which Darwin had found so inspiring. Nature did not actively select anything or anybody. Some individuals simply survived more and therefore reproduced more than others. Thus, they became more and more numerous. It was a simple case, as Darwin would put it later, of the survival of the fittest. The less fit individuals, those without the favorable adaptations, would be less successful in the struggle for existence and they would die out. This was all there was to natural selection. There was no active selection on the part of nature. So the first group, the group with adaptations, was being selected but not by any particular external force. Darwin's theory was one of the evolution of species by this specific mechanism of natural selection. It is crucial that we realize that one could be an evolutionist but still reject the mechanism of natural selection. As we shall see later in this course, this did happen again and again and frequently towards the end of the 19th century. But let us return to Darwin himself. Things are moving very well with his big species book when in mid-1858 he received a letter. This letter came from the Far East from a British naturalist named Alfred Russell Wallace, whom Darwin knew slightly. Wallace's letter enclosed a paper arguing, amazingly, almost exactly what Darwin himself was claiming about evolution and natural selection. 
I never saw a more striking coincidence, exclaimed Darwin. But the coincidence was even more bizarre than he suspected. Not only had Wallace come up with virtually the same idea, but just like Darwin, Wallace too had found his way to the mechanism of natural selection under the influence of none other than the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus. During an attack of malaria, Wallace had suddenly thought of Malthus's views on population and then wondered, I thought of Malthus's clear exposition of the positive checks to increase, diseases, accidents, war and famine, which keep down the population of savage races to much lower an average than that of more civilized peoples. It then suddenly flashed upon me that this self-acting process would necessarily improve the race, because in every generation the inferior would inevitably be killed off and the superior would remain, that is, the fittest would survive. Darwin was stunned and crushed by Wallace's letter. So far, he had published nothing at all of his own theory, and here was somebody else ready with a paper to claim full credit for the discovery. But stunned as he was, Darwin was a deeply honorable man, and he did not wish to interfere in any way with the publication of Wallace's theory, even though that would mean that all of Darwin's own work over so many years would have been in vain. Darwin's friends Joseph Hooker and the geologist Charles Lyell convinced Darwin, however, not to go that far. They suggested that Darwin's hypothesis and Wallace's theory should be presented at a joint meeting of the Linnaean Society of London, which was a well-known group of naturalists. So that's what happened. Wallace's paper was read there, but also the outline Darwin had written for himself in 1844 and Darwin's letter to Asa Gray in 1857 spelling out his initial theory. This was done on the 1st of July 1858 by Lyell and Hooker. Darwin didn't go and Wallace, of course, was at the other end of the world. But the astounding thing for us today is that there was absolutely no reaction in the scientific community. The theory was completely ignored. Wallace and Darwin remained firm friends. Wallace never had the slightest resentment about the joint presentation and always deferred to Darwin's authority. One of Wallace's most famous books was to be called Darwinism. In any case, there were some differences in their approach. Wallace, for instance, had never been concerned with the results of animal breeders, whereas Darwin had made that a cornerstone of his own theory. But the Wallace experience made Darwin realize that his time was running short and he did not have the kind of time that Lyell needed for his geology and Darwin himself needed for his theory of evolution to work. He had to come out with something much more quickly. So suspending work on his big book, he commenced writing a shorter, much less technical work. And this was finished by March 1859. At the end of that year, it was published by the well-known London publishing firm John Murray. Its title was 
on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Darwin greatly feared that the book would not sell. But he was wrong. Booksellers bought up the first printing of 1,250 copies on the day of publication itself. But Darwin, exhausted, ill, and miserable, retired to a spa for a classic Victorian water cure. We can be relatively brief in discussing Darwin's subsequent life and books. He continued to suffer from periodic bouts of illness, but never really stopped working. Except for two major books, most of his later works were actually uh, restricted monographs on very definite, very technical topics, such as the mechanisms of reproduction in flowering plants, or the different forms of flowers, or the movements of climbing plants. All of these technical projects are, of course, connected by his larger view of evolution, but these books were really quite restricted studies. There were two big exceptions, however. The first exception was The Descent of Man, which was published in 1871, and it was Darwin's major statement on the evolutionary origins of humankind, a topic on which he had actually maintained total silence in The Origin of Species. The other book of great general interest was the 1872 publication, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. In this latter book, Darwin, with the assistance of some fascinating photographs, explored what human facial expressions said about our animal origins. Now, we can all guess that Darwin's views on human origins did not quite support popular convictions of human uniqueness nor did they support that humans had been created in the image of God, with a soul and a moral sense that the lower animals did not possess. What Darwin actually said about humanity, we shall have to examine in detail in a different lecture. But the broad sweep of his life was now clear. Slowly but steadily, his interests in natural history had led this aspiring priest from a position of conventional, relatively unquestioning faith in the truth of Christianity to one that appeared to undermine some of Christianity's basic teachings. And yet, there was no necessary opposition between Darwinism and Christianity. When he died in 1882, Darwin was buried in Westminster Abbey the burial ground reserved for England's greatest heroes. Not only was this a great national honor for Darwin himself, but it was also a very clear sign that the apparent gulf between Christianity and Darwinism was not entirely unbridgeable, at least not entirely unbridgeable for the relatively tolerant and broad-minded Church of England. This again is a topic that we shall return to in a later lecture. So let me end by saying something about Darwin as a human being. All the historical evidence agrees Darwin was a typical English gentleman, polite, modest, retiring. In politics, he is liberal, but not liberal in our sense, liberal 
in a 19th century English sense. He was against slavery, for instance, and he also supported a reasonable degree of individual liberty. He was a staunch supporter of the North during the American Civil War. In later life, he lost his religious faith almost completely, but never ever saw himself as a full-scale atheist. He just could not bring himself to believe in the doctrine of Christians, but he was content to end his life simply as a man without an inner faith. His wife Emma, however, was a devout woman, and throughout his life Darwin took great care not to pain her unnecessarily with his views on the origin and nature of life. Darwin himself thought that he was not very intelligent, but thought he was superior to others in the way he observed, in his patience, and in his total love for science. With such moderate abilities as I possess, he wrote in his autobiography, it is truly surprising that I should have influenced, to a considerable extent, the belief of scientific men on some important points. Once again, it was the English gentleman being modest. Darwin's influence wasn't simply limited to the scientists of his time. He influenced subsequent generations deeply and extensively. In a very real sense, he made the world we live in. In the next lecture, we shall turn to his major work, The Origin of Species, look at its basic arguments, and see how they developed the theory of evolution that is associated with the name of Darwin. After listening to Lecture 1, a student posed this question to Professor Sengupta. Was Darwin's original theory derived from biological observations of a technical nature? Let's listen to the professor's response. Darwin's theory has certainly proved to be applicable to areas of modern biology that are very technical. But Darwin's own theory was not at all technical. It was a set of explanations in natural history. Darwin was simply trying to explain the various oddities of natural history that he had found during his travels. His explanations of them are basically historical and natural historical, but certainly not technical and biological in our sense. It is true that modern Darwinism has some very technical aspects, but Darwin's own theory was not at all technical and one does not need to be a trained biologist to understand its basics and to see how it was applied to various different areas of life in the course of the 19th century and even most of the 20th century. This ends Lecture 1.